So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, hey, I'm Nate Larkin here with our good friend David Hampton. Uh, positive Sobriety. You know, we talk a lot about positivity. We focus on that. But yeah, David, sobriety is, uh, let's just say, a many splendored, many dimensioned thing. Is it not? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Sobriety is not just uh abstinence from a certain substance or uh, activity or behavior mm-hmm. uh it turns out i'm pretty omni addictive and the mm-hmm. addictive uh i can be technically sober mm-hmm. from whatever you know as defined by any particular program i'm in mm-hmm. and just be stone cold crazy in yeah. another area <laughs> that's not being monitored right 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 and yeah. the quality and the quality of my life uh, will, uh, you know, start to diminish mm-hmm. unless I am keeping my eyes open, paying attention. That's why it's, you know, I have found it very helpful over the last uh, 20 years, um, more than 20 years mm-hmm. from time to time to bring in, uh, <laughs> to bring in other, to mix it up. Yeah. To step into another program to get into a group for a while, to do an intensive, to do a retreat, to mm-hmm. spend time with a therapist. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been helped by multiple therapists over the years. Yeah. And uh, uh, recently I, I started with another. I can't remember. Did we ever have Phil Herndon on the show? I know we, he's scheduled yes, to be on the show. Yes, we did. Yeah, we okay. did indeed. Yeah, uh, about a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so at the suggestion of my physician, I made an appointment with Phil, and I've had two sessions so far, and it has been illuminating. Uh, oh yeah, uh, I, I will say that I, you know, I have this great forgetter that not only tends to forget, uh, you know, the consequences of past actions, so that I get caught in loops. I can mm-hmm. actually, I can actually forget fundamental principles of recovery, things I know and understand. I see it. It's a, it is a key insight. It makes sense. And then yeah, over time I can forget it. And yeah. one of the things that Phil is reminding me of, and it, you know, we've spent time with Chip Dodd and Phil was Chip's associate for many years at CPE, mm-hmm. uh, is that, uh, you know, our, our addiction, our addictive behavior, our compulsion, whatever it is that we've fallen into at its root, almost certainly uh, has something to do 
with a feeling that we are trying to escape or suppress. Exactly. Yeah. We're doing what we're doing for emotional reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah. So <laughs> the, the whole, what, what am I trying not to feel question, you know? Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. Constantly, constantly. Yeah. I, so I, this I, is, well, I, Nate, I'm, I, first of all, I'm, I'm thrilled that you have connected with Phil. And yeah. secondly, I thank you for sharing that with everybody. Cause I think very often it's easy for us to believe that our recovery circles can fill the same gaps as therapy can. And right. that's yeah. not always true. You know, we right. can have sure. wonderful sponsors and we can have wonderful groups and, and be surrounded by a lot of wisdom, but yes. really no substitute in my opinion for that skilled right. person that can guide you through uh, the minefield of your own bullshit. <laughs> yeah. 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 Take you into the places where you're, you know, cause we convince ourselves of so many things, you know, yeah. that, um, that the person like Phil can come in and go, okay. Uh, you know, just like you said, what do you, what do you try not to feel? What is the thing under the thing? And yeah. Um, well, I'm really grateful. You know, I told you I'm, I, I made an appointment with Phil at the suggestion of my doctor and my doctor who himself is, uh, you know, a recovery guy, mm-hmm. uh, picked up on something that I had not seen and hadn't noticed. He, he looked at me closely, hadn't seen me in a few years uh, for multiple reasons, but it, and he, he started asking me about depression. Mm-hmm. Are you depressed? Mm-hmm. Well, depression has never been a part of my self-concept, David. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm an upbeat person. Right. I'm a friendly person. I'm a yeah. positive person. I can't possibly be depressed. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, what my doctor was picking up on was this undertone mm. uh, as, as though yeah, I'm walking through water. Is there something there? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that you know, the room's recovery helps us do is to cultivate willingness and an openness to feedback, to entertain the possibility that somebody might actually see something that we can't see. That's true. Right. So following up on the doctor's, uh, you know, suggestion, I went to see Phil and, and Phil confirmed it is possible to be, uh, you know, dragging a low grade depression and still be, functional and uh you know and friendly mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> but right but not at your best right 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 and i have yeah. been aware most of us have time, judged have our feelings and best. our emotions so much yeah you know that we don't uh we don't even know when we're doing that right exactly yeah. So I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm really grateful that my physician threw the flag. I'm really grateful that Phil was available. And uh, <laughs> right. And so now I'm dealing with uh, actually with his help and encouragement and assistance and guidance and coaching. I'm taking a look mm-hmm. at feelings with which I am uh, instinctively very uncomfortable. So you know, mm-hmm. I'm taking a look at loneliness. Yeah, I'm taking a look at uh, anger and fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what? In twelve-step rooms, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're always, you know, always quick to highlight, you know, those four 
horsemen of the apocalypse, you know. Uh, now, I did fear work <laughs> and anger work 20 years ago, David. Uh, you would mm -hmm. think that I had banished fear from my life and that anger is only in the past tense. But uh, that, that's mm -hmm. not true. Those things have crept back yeah. in and I haven't wanted to acknowledge them. And I have been, uh, whether I'm aware of it or not, have been paying a price for that. And uh, when I pay that price, mm -hmm. then the people around me pay the price as well. So uh, mm -hmm. all to say that yeah. recovery is on a continuum. Sobriety uh, is a many-dimensioned thing. Uh, I don't want to be in a point, mm -hmm. David, and I know you don't want to either. You know, people come to us for help. And there's this temptation for us to mm -hmm. start to uh, People want to believe that we're completely fixed. And there's a part of me that would like that to be true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. The yeah. process is over and I have arrived. Uh, exactly. But, but I do think that, you know, when even on an unconscious level, I start to entertain that self-concept. At that point, my own uh, serenity, if not my sobriety, begins to suffer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what we need this week is we need, you know what? We need a good, solid addiction and recovery story and just some basic direction about. Uh, yeah, I think we've got a guess. Turning it around once you hit bottom. I think we do. I'm quite certain we do. Listeners, I know you're yeah. going to enjoy this. Yeah. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, hey, David, there is no shortage in this country and in this world, people whose uh, stories mirror in some respect yours and mine. It's crazy. Absolutely. Now, during my years of active addiction, I thought I was unique and nobody was having the struggles I was having and nobody would possibly understand. And then it seems like week after week, we meet people who can kind of tell our story from a different angle because they've walked a very similar road. And we've got a guest, another guest this week, who's going to help us by sharing his story, going to help us maybe get a little bit more clarity on our own. Uh, would you introduce our guest? Yeah, we have Andrew with us today. Andrew is coming from the um, Find Addiction Rehab um, uh, group there. They have an organization that actually it's a website, of course, findaddictionrehab.com, I believe. And they help you find uh, rehabs in your area and um, even by state. I noticed on the website, you can go to your state and get some, uh, not just addiction rehab information, but statistics on uh, what uh, substance abuse and things like that in your state are, what legislation is pending in your state. Important things to know about, uh, you know, your own uh, kind of local uh, recovery, uh, communities and, and it's very, uh, comprehensive. And, and so I'm excited to hear about that. But, uh, first we always enjoy hearing somebody's story, like you said, and, and I know that people working with find addiction rehab, um, 
are uh, coming from a place of their own as well. So their own experience. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, David and Nathan. Absolutely. So uh, uh, you now are in Boca Raton, Florida. Yeah. Uh, how old a guy are you, Andrew? I am 39. 39 years old. Okay. All right. Yes. And uh, I wonder if uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us the story that got you to where you are today. Of course. Um, so there's something that you had said, Nathan, that that I I say a lot and, and I hear constantly from from my predecessors. And it's about the similarities, not the differences, because if I'm constantly mm -hmm. looking at the differences, I am never going to get any help. I'm going to be stuck right. thinking the same thing that you said, saying that my situation is unique to just me. So nobody can help me. So why try? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So everything for me started. I was born in Medellin, Colombia. Um, the only thing that I know that I was told was that as an infant, a storekeeper found me on a street corner and brought wow. me over to the local orphanage. And I was there till I was about four or five. Um, yeah. My adopted parents had came to Columbia to adopt my little sister. Um, and the lady that ran the orphanage, um, she told them, we've got a four-year-old boy that we're afraid if you guys don't take him, nobody will. One of the things a lot of people don't understand about adopting in foreign countries is once you hit a certain age, people really don't, don't want you and you can get stuck. So mm. I felt in the beginning that I just didn't belong anywhere. I felt that I was a charity yeah. case. Um, I didn't felt like I belonged to anybody because I was constantly being passed around. Um, moved and was adopted, came over to, to New Jersey. Uh, I lived in Jersey for about, I think till I was about 10 or 11 and I moved to Florida. Um, I can't really tell you that much about my life between when I was born to when I was about 13, because for me, my life started at 13. I had gotten into school because I was constantly getting picked on. Um, I was lucky enough to be afforded to go to a good private school in Boca Raton. And um, because I, my skin color was a little bit different than everybody else's, I got picked on. And unfortunately, my adoptive father said that that can't happen at the place that, that, that I was at because it's a good school. So I never was hurt. So I went through all of my pain and frustration until finally it boiled into anger. I got myself in trouble and I started going to, uh, I got sent away to a program. I was in programs from 13 to 17, those behavioral programs that you hear about where kids are abused, tortured, um, molested, starved. And I kept going from worse ones to worse ones to worse ones to worse ones because Again, I just wasn't hurt. I kept telling people, I don't belong here. This isn't for me. But mm -hmm. I kept being stuck there because I was told by my father, well, they don't want, we don't want you home. So that's where you are. So finally, yeah. something snapped in me when I was 16. And I was just like, well, if this is the person that I am, I might as well be the best at it. So if I'm a bad <laughs> kid, I'm going to be the best bad kid you guys have ever seen in your life. Mm -hmm. And I wound up getting kicked out of a program in Hancock, New York, called the Family Foundation School that finally the feds shut down and they um, they did all that. Wow. I wound up being homeless and sent to Binghamton, New York, um, and I was living at the YMCA. And I laugh sometimes when I tell my story because people don't didn't understand that you can live at the YMCA back then. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there I was, 17 years old, 
didn't know anybody in New York, living at a, living in the YMCA, constantly getting into trouble until I got arrested and came back down to Florida just to have more anger than I knew what to deal with. Um, until finally I went to prison down here when I was almost about 21, did two years, got out, and I had the biggest chip on my shoulder. For me, I started drinking and, and using because I was angry. Um, and I felt like if I wasn't allowed to have a good life, if I wasn't allowed to have a family, if I wasn't allowed to be loved, then nobody else should. And I took that anger and frustration out on everybody that I saw. If you had something that I felt like you didn't deserve, I wanted to ruin that for you because I didn't know how to deal with my emotions in any way until the alcohol started to just numb everything and just make me feel like I didn't have to deal with it anymore. The alcohol yeah. took care of that for me. And then the drugs took care of that for me. And then I found people that I thought were just like me. And then they gave me everything that I thought that I was looking for until um, my addiction got to the point to where it does for what it does for everybody is I isolated. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be around yeah. anybody anymore. All I wanted to be around it was myself because that lie that I kept telling me, telling myself no longer worked. The lie that yeah. this is helping, this is taking care yeah. of, this is allowing mm -hmm. you to live, this is allowing you to get through the day. That lie stops working after a certain amount of years. And then it's just, yeah. I want to be by myself because I'm ashamed. Um, I met my wife two or three months after mm -hmm. I got out of prison um, and she was addicted to pain pills. Um, we've now got 16 years together. We share the same, um, we share the same clean date, February 28th. Um, I'll get into that in a little bit as well, because that's part of my story. Mm -hmm. um, I did what everybody did when I found out that my wife was addicted to, to pain pills was I tried to become a czar. I was making sure that she had to be around me and she couldn't be around her friends. And I was micromanaging her life. And I thought that I can fix her. Mm. I've got yeah. this, I can change what I didn't understand about addiction and that that's not the way that it works. It made things worse until finally I wound up doing the same drugs that she did. And then my life just really spiraled out of control. Um, she wound up getting pregnant with our twin boys after I think we were together about six, seven years because I figured if she got pregnant, she'd stop using. In the meantime, I was still drinking and doing cocaine every single night and not coming home for three days because I'm not the problem. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, as long as right. I don't have to take a look at myself, everything is okay. I've got a project to work on. So I completely ignored everything that was going on with my life and I just dived deep into somebody else's. So she got pregnant, she stopped using, our twin boys were born, um, but my addiction just took off like no other. Um, I didn't stop, unfortunately, until my kids were um, about four or five. Um, mm. I'm a consequence person. I'm, I wasn't mm. gonna stop using unless the consequences were severe. And for me, unfortunately, jail, prison, homelessness, that wasn't a consequence for me because I know how to maneuver in chaos. I know how to live in chaos. I thrive in chaos and I find peace in chaos. It's a mm -hmm. false sense of peace, but you give me some kind of calm, regular world and I go crazy in it because I feel like that's not for me. I don't mm -hmm. belong mm -hmm. in that because I was never given that and I don't deserve that. And I didn't understand mm -hmm. about 
that until I started really getting into my step work with my sponsor. Then I started to understand the true reason that uh, about addiction and how to really find that peace. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what brought me to finally stop was um, me and my wife overdosed with our twin boys in the house. Um, wow. Yeah. Somehow I was able to call 911 um, and the 911 tape was played on the air all over the country. And I remember listening to it and hearing me not know who I was, not knowing who my wife was. And you hear my kids pounding on my wife saying, mommy, wake up, mommy, wake up before the Boynton Beach Police Department break down the door and came in and saved me and my wife, took the kids away. And I remember waking up in the hospital, handcuffed to a hospital bed and cops yelling at me, talking about kids and me not and me thinking, I don't have kids. What are you guys mm-hmm. talking about? And then my life changed and my life started on a path that um, brought me to today. The crazy part is, is after I was told my kids got taken away and I got sent to Palm Beach County Jail and I got bailed out and I came home. Before I went to treatment and before my lawyer came in and said, you have to go, I still used before I went in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. just how insane everything was. And it was like, literally, my life imploded. And the first thing on my mind was after I got out of jail was I need to get right. It wasn't about yeah. my kids. It wasn't about my life, my wife, or anything like that. Because I didn't understand about powerlessness. I didn't mm-hmm. get that. So shame comes more because that's really all that happens. One of the things that I've learned today is that I used because I was trying to escape one feeling and one reason. And my sponsor asked me one day, he goes, well, if using is your, is, is your answer, what's your question? And I didn't know what to, I didn't know how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And then he broke it down to me in a way that was, I'm using to get out of my anger. I'm using to get out of my frustration. I'm using to get out of my stress, my depression, the trauma from my childhood. But all I was ever doing was replacing one feeling and emotion with shame, guilt, regret, remorse. Because that's how yeah. I felt when I woke up and before I went to bed with the, with the prayers of, I don't want to do this anymore. And honestly saying, I don't want to use anymore. I don't want this life anymore. But waking up the next day, powerless to an addiction that I have to do it. So I went to treatment because I was facing 10 years, two first degree child neglect charges, um, a whole bunch of other things. And that's where everything kind of started. I went to a treatment facility up in Stewart. I spent about four months because my lawyer told me that I have to get as much completions as possible because the DA in Palm Beach County just wasn't having it. It was an opiate epidemic and I was that poster child and they were going to give me the maximum. Mm, So I went to treatment, got out of treatment and my wife got out first. She went with me and she had went to a meeting. And I remember coming home and going back to the house I overdosed, going back to the bed that I was in, having to pass my kids' room, knowing that they're not there because of my actions, and lying in a bed saying, I don't know what to do. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't want to be at my house because of all the memories. I don't want to be on the streets. I don't want to drive around. So I went to a meeting because I had no, I didn't know where else to go. I didn't know where I belonged anymore. The lie was no longer believable. And I was completely broken, not fully surrendered yet because I didn't know what surrender meant because I wasn't taught that. Mm -hmm. I was just broken. 
walked into a meeting at Crossroads in Delray. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Crossroads Club over in Delray Beach, Florida, but I walked mm. into an 8.30 meeting and I never left. Oh, wow. Because I was too afraid of what I was going to do. Um, I'll fast forward a little bit because one of the things that, that that's important is, is understanding um, addiction in a way that makes sense for, for me. And that was understanding what I had to do to get myself okay again. Um, my big thing, and one of the things that Find Addiction Rehab does, and what I do when I talk to people is to educate about addiction. Because in my head in the beginning, I thought that as long as I could stop drinking, as long as I could stop using, I was going to be okay. My life will be better if I just stop using. I didn't understand that it goes deeper than that. And it's not anything to do with, with alcohol or drugs. That was just my numbing agent. And when I did a thorough first step, I understood about obsessiveness, compulsion, and surrender, and how my addiction can manifest for food, sex, porn, so many different other ways I can destroy my life mm -hmm. besides drinking and alcohol. Right. So I, it was about, okay, well, what do I do then? How do I become okay with myself? And it was boiled down to, well, I have to surrender. And that surrender for me was was big because I heard it the best way somebody said that is there's multiple surrenders that I have to have. The first one is that I can never have a drink ever again for, for the rest of my life. The second one is that I had to surrender to the fact that I can't be clean and live dirty. And then the third surrender for me was I can't smoke weed either. So I got the, the, the weed thing. That was never my thing, the alcohol, but the living clean and not being dirty thing was something that I just didn't understand and didn't hear. And, and the way it was put to me, it was, is there spiritual principles behind everything that we do? Recovery is a way of life. The steps aren't there just for homework. Recovery isn't something that we do just for homework. The only way that everything works for me and that has allowed me to find my peace is being able to live the steps in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. And if I'm not living that first step, it's not going to matter. I'm never going to find that peace because I'm going to be running on my own will and me on my own will. I am going to destroy everything around me. Mm -hmm. So living, living clean and not being dirty is I can't be out there lying to people. I can't be hustling. I can't be conning. I have to be honest. No matter what it does, I have to be honest, whether it's going to make me lose friends, whether it's going to make me lose whatever honesty is one of the most important things. And that's why it's in the first step. That's why it's a principle in it is because my life starts and we say it in the meetings when you open up, how does it work? Honesty, open-minded and willingness. And unless all three are firing on the same cylinders, it doesn't matter. It's not this program and recovery isn't going to work for me. Well, friends, David and I are pleased to welcome to the podcast a new sponsor, Soberlink. And we're positive that you're going to love this tool for managing your alcohol recovery. In early sobriety, we often focus on what we're losing instead of what we're gaining. Soberlink, you're gaining increased accountability, a deterrent against drinking, and a tool to help you stay connected with people who care. Uh, here's what it is. It's a really high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition. 
It allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones. In case there's ever a slip, your treatment professional or anyone else you've chosen to be in your recovery circle will know immediately. Uh, more important than the technology is the brand. It is part of Soberlink's mission to break the stigma that surrounds addiction, which is why they partner with Positive Sobriety Podcast and many others in the recovery community. It's also why they specifically focus on using alcohol monitoring as a recovery tool, not for criminal or recreational purposes. There, any, there isn't anything like it on the market. Well, together we've developed a guide called Tips for Keeping a Positive Outlook on Sobriety. And you can download it at www.soberlink.com PSP. That PSP is for Positive Sobriety Podcast. On that page, you'll also find a form to request $50 off your purchase when you're ready to try Soberlink. So, I started to get a base. I started to get a foundation. I started understanding what my predecessors were talking about, about raising my hand, changing my way of thinking, doing everything, service work. And then COVID hit. I had about uh, two years, COVID hit. I lost my job and I couldn't get work. And I fell back into depression. And then my yeah. father passed away and I had to go see him. And this was a man that I was never going to forgive, but he apologized for all my child abuse. Um, on his deathbed and luckily i know today never to go into a situation without support so i had somebody from the rooms there with me that kind of made sure that i was okay and made sure that i got everything out that i had to and then of course what everybody in the rooms does they made sure that i had like a cocoon and made sure that i wasn't going to allow this incident to let me go back um Kept trying to find work, kept trying to find work. But the problem was everybody Googled my name. And when you Google my name, my criminal record pops up and what happened pops up and delivery dudes wouldn't even hire me. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. It didn't matter that I've got two years and that I've, I've started to, pro to progress and get my life back. They just weren't going. They didn't want that around. Mm -hmm. And then um, my sister wound up passing away she overdosed in miami um she suffers from bipolar this is my sister that was in the orphanage with me um because yeah. she just couldn't she couldn't get it and covid did what it did to a lot of people struggling with addiction it isolated us when yeah her things got taken away from her and her mental health just got the best and she she threw away uh two years and we found out that she had passed so i had two big deaths then my sponsor passed away and i was like I thought about quitting. Wow. Because I was yeah. like, what's mm -hmm. the point? What, what, what's the point? Why am I going to continue on this road? And then I had enough excuses to go out and use. Mm. There was enough excuses yeah, right. there. Yeah. My sponsor now told me one of the things that um, is, is in the first of this, we, are, we were powerless over our addiction. And he mm. says, were is the, main, is the main word in that because it's past tense. That means from mm -hmm. here on out, Andrew, you are no longer powerless over your addiction. If you pick right. up and relapse, it's because you want to. There is no excuse. And a full surrender means that I, I know today that there is absolutely no reason to pick up a drink or a drug. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I did a full, thorough first step. So there is no excuse. And mm -hmm. if I do pick up, it's my fault. 
I chose because I have all the tools to do. So yeah. I had to get up and work. I, I, I had to do something. I had to pull myself out, out of the funk. And I remember seeing um, an Indeed ad for Find Addiction Rehabs, and I kind of reached out to them. And they brought me in for an interview. And the first thing I remember telling them was, Google my name. Because I really didn't want to go any further because I was tired of being rejected. Because yeah. I don't deal good with rejection. I don't. Mm-hmm. So they looked it up and they're like, you're perfect for us. So <laughs> <laughs> they said, you're just damaged enough to help people. And I was like, all right. I've never done a recovery job in my life. Um, I've always done sales, medical sales, talking to people and, and things like that. This was something that was that was different and new, but I had been doing service work for two years and I found my peace in service work. Yeah. Working um, registration at, at, uh, at conventions and, and stuff like that. Um, and that's where it was instilled in me that if I want to keep the peace that I have in my life today, I have to give it away. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just I'm, I'm going to go back to being miserable and I don't want to be miserable today. Doing the things that yeah. that were suggested to me, not told, but suggested um, and watching it work in people's lives and being able to get myself with the right people um, and figuring out the people that had stuff in recovery that I wanted um, and gravitating towards that. So I gravitate and people that are in my circle are people who are married in recovery because I need to know how to be a husband. I need to know how to communicate mm-hmm. with my wife properly. We've been together now 16 years. She's got her sponsor. She's got her sponsorship family. Her program and recovery is hers. I do not get involved in it. I am not her sponsor. I will never tell her mm-hmm. to go to a meeting. I will never tell her to do step work. That's not my job. My job is to be there as mm-hmm. a supportive husband and, and, and as a father. She doesn't get involved in my program because my program is mine. Then I gravitated towards people that had kids in recovery because I had to learn how to be a father again. Mm. I had to learn how to mm-hmm. be present. And one of the hardest things that got me actually into my first fight with my first sponsor was um, the question in the first step saying, what's the most important thing? And he was like, you are the most important thing. Your recovery comes first, not your kids. And I didn't understand mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. I had to get with people. And luckily, I... I do everything that I that I've seen my predecessors do. So I was able to reach out to people that put me in contact with, with, with people that had kids in recovery. And the way that it made that was made to make sense with me was I have to take care of myself and my recovery first so I can put the people that have to be first first. Mm-hmm. The only way I can put my kids first is if my recovery is got the strongest foundation and that I'm doing the things to take care of myself so I can be there for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Fine addiction rehabs has allowed me to do more more service work than um, I was able to because I'm able to do it on a day to day basis because we not only educate people that are calling about loved ones that don't know what to do. Um, we're also talking to people who are in the grips of active addiction that don't see a way out and feel just the way that you started in Nathan saying that nobody knows what I'm going through. Mm. So mm-hmm. we have. I, I have this thing that, that, that I do a lot and, and it's, I try to let everybody know and I give a lot too much and, and I want people to understand what I went through because when I explain to people and I tell somebody, I feel alone in a room full of people. 
somebody that's mm-hmm. struggling in addiction, they understand that. A normal person right, not sure. really understand what that means. So whenever I start talking to somebody, I always like to tell them, qualify myself or, or, or whatever, and explain to them my mm-hmm. feelings of what brought me there. That way they can mm-hmm. finally be like you too. And I'm like, yes. yeah. 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 Now this is what I did to get my peace back. And this is what I yeah. did to get my freedom. This is how hope was given to me. Let me give it to you because it was freely given to me. Right. Yeah. So that's pretty yeah. much what, what we do over here is we, we help educate families. And um, I got licensed in crisis intervention, um, I think about six months ago, because I love the field. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, 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 I love recovery. Is, is the recovery field, is, is it sometimes become too much? Yes. Do I have to figure out a balance? Yes, I do. And But balance is part of recovery. My whole life is mm-hmm. rebalancing. Yeah. yeah, because it, it says it in the third step as well. It's, it's it's about being honest and being responsible at whatever point in recovery we are at that time. You know what I mean? That's what I heard it said in the third step when it talks about higher power and, and, and how do we not live in our own will and our higher powers. Will. And that way it was explained to us because I'm not going to be the same. My recovery mm-hmm. right now is not going to be the same recovery six months down the road. At least I hope it's not. Otherwise, I'm not having any growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Struggles, struggle, well, tribes, tribulations are always going to be there. Sure. Yeah. Well, Andrew, um, one of the things I get asked a lot um, in the work that I do with people is how do I find a place uh, that will help me? Uh, places that maybe take insurance, places that I don't have insurance, um, and I and I right now I don't have an income. Uh, where can I go with that? Are you guys able to help navigate some of those specifics uh, that go into finding good um, rehab for people in their general area? Because uh, that's that's a huge uh, that's a huge service to people. Gotcha. So. They've been, uh, Fundedix Rehabs have been around for about five years. So they've got relationships with a lot of private dual diagnosis facilities all over the country. Um, when it comes to people that don't have insurance or people that don't have the financial means to do it, there are options. And we help them find every single facility that's going to be free or that'll take Medicaid or take Medicare in their area. Mm-hmm. And then um, mm-hmm. depending on what they're struggling with, I'll also send them either AA meetings or NA meetings. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to make sure that once you call and you reach out for help, you have everything available to you right there so that you don't have to search anymore. All you right. got to do yeah. is just call them and, and they'll help. Um, if you've got insurance that can be taken, we'll help you find something that's going to be the right fit for you. Every facility is not going to be the right fit. The main thing that I always try to tell people is dual diagnosis is the best because it's not the substance. It's never just the substance. We right. have to yeah. figure out, and I have to figure out how to deal with the things that were causing me the pain. How do I deal with stress in a way that's healthy? Because unfortunately, the world doesn't stop because we get help. The world didn't care right. that I, Andrew Otto, was struggling and I was ready to get help. That stress and chaos was going to be patiently waiting for me. So you want to mm-hmm. go to a place that's going to be able to give you the tools to deal with that in a way that's healthy instead of just having to constantly say, I give up, I quit. There is no yeah. hope. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Is there a, a fee for your services, Andrew, the, the work that you guys do? Are, are people charged for you helping them find a place? Okay. 
Uh, so I have a question, uh, Andrew, during your uh, adolescence, when you were sent from uh, program to program, uh, it became pretty clear to you that not every program operates as advertised. And there are programs out there. Uh, there are rehabs out there. And I got to say, South Florida, at least for a time, was notorious for them uh, that were just uh, uh, I, I, we heard horrible stories about about, you know, people uh, uh, being supplied drugs after they got out so that they can qualify to get back in so that more money can be collected from the government, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I imagine um, that uh, in the field that you guys are in with the experience and the connections and, uh, you know, the, the breadth of conversations that you have, uh, you're aware of the reputable facilities and those that are questionable. Uh, do you have kind of a criterion that you uh, can you warn people off from from places that, you know, are not going to be helpful? Yeah, so basically what, what, what we look for is um, JCO accredited facilities, and that's pretty much who we deal with. And that's the Joint Commission Accreditations. That means that they're vetted by the government. They come in to make sure that the facility does exactly what it says it does. So they get okay, audited. Good. They have to jump through hoops. Um, and then what I do is I'll, I'll always send a link to the facility and be like, do your due diligence as well. This is something that I would recommend, but I always tell you, do your due diligence. Make sure that this okay. is something that's going to work for you. If it's not going to fit for you, if you need something that's more trauma-based, okay, we'll help you find something that has more trauma-based therapy in it. But every place uh -huh. that we deal Good. with is we won't deal with it unless we've done our homework on them as well. I okay, want every phone call that somebody makes when they go to treatment, I don't want them to have to pick up the phone six months down the road and say, I need help again. I can't mm -hmm. control that. But what I can do is lead somebody on a path to where if they do and, and they take the suggestions given, they can find that. But obviously, as we know, sometimes for, for people, it takes a little more time than one. Sure. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, do you have um, people, Andrew, that you uh, I, I mean, we all know that uh, many times people that seek help and end up in inpatient treatment. Uh, need to go more than once, statistically speaking. Do you have people that end up on your uh, repeat lists? And and I'm sure they're treated just as graciously the third time they work with you as maybe they would be the first. But is that something you see frequently? Yeah. So, and, and, and it happens for many reasons. For, for myself, um, what it was, the reason that it took me three treatment facilities before I finally got it was I just, I wasn't ready. I wasn't doing it for the reasons that were myself. I was doing it for other people. I just wanted mm -hmm. this person off my back. I, I wanted to figure out how to use successfully. That was, that was after my first one. I went because I figured if I could just get off of, of, of the substances, I could figure out how to be a successful user. Mm -hmm. And I can do yeah. it with making sure I don't get sick and everything like that. And by the third time, I was ready because I just, I, I was done. Right. Yeah. So when I talk to people, I, I try to explain to them that your bottom is whenever you say you're done. You don't have mm -hmm. to have an earth-shattering rock bottom 
for you to finally see the light and be like, okay, I'm ready to do whatever it takes to get to get clean and sober. Your bottom is when you say you're done. Me, myself, like I said, I was a consequence person and I had to find that right consequence for me to stop. Otherwise, I never was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's was my case. And it's my job to try to help your bottom come before I see you go down the path and have the pain that I had. And that's what my predecessors do and the people that are in my support. They tell me all the time, what are you doing? You don't have to do that. I bump my head that way for you. And they'll do their best they can to save me for myself, but I'm human. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sometimes I have to bump my head in recovery and they'll stand there and laugh and be like, okay, let's, let's try yeah. something different. Are you ready this time? Mm-hmm. So the yeah. education part yeah. of it is something that is, is the best that I can do. But yeah, people are going to come back and, and if they call and they messed up, um, I'll help them the same way I did the first time. And if you have yeah. to go eight, nine, ten times, I'm going to help you all the time. And I'm always going to say, what happened? What did you what did you do yeah. wrong? What did you do when you get home? We'll try to help you figure out as well. And it's pretty mm-hmm. much always the same thing. And we hear it and you hear it in, in, in the rooms is the first thing they do is they stop going to meetings. They stop reaching yeah, out to right. people. They, they, they stop making phone calls, isolate again, and they start to believe yeah. that they've got this. Yeah. So I Do want them all, to understand um, or try to start. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, Andrew, do you guys uh, deal with people with process addictions as well as uh, substance use issues? So, you know, somebody with uh, uh, would identify as uh, sexual addiction or gambling, things like that. Do you have uh, treatment centers for those things or do you guys primarily focus on substance use disorder? So we do have facilities that we work with that are mental health primary um, that can deal with um, sex addiction, porn addiction, um, overeating, bulimia, um, that can deal with gambling. Um, You're never going to not call or reach out and not get a resource. Okay. So we're always going to make sure that you have everything at your disposal to get help. Mm Because a lot of times people will get turned down. Oh, you don't have private mm-hmm. insurance. I'm sorry, and, and and get hung up on. And when you keep hearing that, you're seeing that door shut in your face. It turns into the why. There is no yeah, help for yeah. me. Why try? I don't have the money. And people start to get jaded about the treatment industry and say, it's it's not here to help anybody. It's here for money. But done mm-hmm. the right way, everybody can get help. So we try to be that gold standard of making sure that everybody that reaches out for help gets it. Mm-hmm. So for listeners who are at the point where they want to reach out for themselves or for somebody they care about, what, uh, what are the ways that they can reach you and uh, avail themselves of the resources that you guys provide? So all they got to do is go to findaddictionrehabs.com. Um, We've got numbers on there. We've got videos. We've got blogs. We've got statistics. We've got we've got helplines. Um, we've got videos of of myself and other people that that have been in it that can kind of help because sometimes and and I feel like putting a face to a conversation um, mm-hmm. has more impact. Yeah. So. Well. Uh, this has been uh, again stirring. 
<laughs> I've been hearing stories like yours and mine now for uh, better than 20 years. And here's the thing. I still need to hear them. Mm -hmm. They're still helpful to me. And uh, I really appreciate your transparency, your humility, <laughs> your willingness to share your story with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Andrew, it's been a delightful conversation. Listeners, once again, it's findaddictionrehabs.com. And uh, so uh, now you know that's another place that you can go. Thanks so much, Andrew. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety. Thank you so much, Nathan and David. Positive Sobriety Podcast. Um, Nate, this is a really important, uh, I think, an important episode for a couple of reasons. And one, um, you know, just Andrew's story. I mean, again, you know, mm -hmm. we hear stories over and over. But um, gosh, it's good to be reminded of so many of the things that he brought out to us. Um, yes, you know, yes, in his yes. Story, it, it, you know, um, but but the um, the thing that really excites me about what he's doing um, with finding um, the with finding rehabs for folks that are looking for yeah, yeah, inpatient yeah, yeah. Uh, treatment is that that resource. Um, I can't tell you how hard it is for folks to feel like I've got to do something or I've got a loved one that's got to do something. We've got to make decisions and we have no clue where to go. Um, yeah, yeah. or who to turn yeah. to or how to discern, yeah. you know, reputable from crazy, you know. Yeah, that's right, um, right, right, right. And man, you know, they've done a lot of homework, um, mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. uh, this group. And, uh, you know, they, they have, they, like I told you earlier, they, uh, they have their website even broken down into states and you can see what, mm -hmm. um, even legislation and things like that, uh, is pending in your state and other, yeah. other resources in your state as well as inpatient treatment. So, yeah, um, yeah. I am excited about that for, for our listeners. I hope that that is something that is helpful for folks. Yeah, I certainly got the clear sense from Andrew that uh, he understands, as you and I do, that service is essential to recovery and to ongoing sobriety. And I sense that uh, mm -hmm. findaddictionrehabs.com, the folks behind it, you know, this thing began as service work and it continues as mm -hmm. service work. Uh, yeah. They don't strike me as opportunists, not People just yeah you know, looking to make a buck, but they're there to help. So right, I'm glad to have I'm glad to have them in my toolbox because I don't know about you, but I yeah. sure get a lot of inquiries from people looking for uh, suggestions, direction on where can I send somebody. Right, and, uh, right. I have yeah. some contacts, but only a few. Uh, these folks that, uh, offer us, uh, mm -hmm. I think, a wider set of options. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I had somebody the other day and I, and, and, uh, I was throwing out some places locally or mm -hmm. within, mm -hmm. you know, an hour of, uh, the greater Nashville, middle Tennessee area. And I threw out a, a name of a place and, and, uh, the, the, 
client said, oh, I've, I've been there. And I said, oh, well, what about, I threw out another one. And I've been there. <laughs> so, have you, have you, you know, heard about the stuff they're doing at so-and-so? Yeah, I, I, I went out there for, yeah, I did that. And, uh, you know, we went through this li- list of my, you know, my usuals and uh, they exhausted all that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. so we had to get creative and go, uh, you know, exploring some other options. But this kind of a thing would be a great resource for people that, um, you know, have uh, either just now embarked on the idea that they need treatment or that maybe mm-hmm. they've exhausted the area in which they live and they need some new, uh, some new insights. So yeah. I hope that's yeah. a, a helpful thing. Yeah. Well, uh, David, uh, time has flown. It Here does. It is. Uh, As yeah. it does on Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. It's been daggone near an hour. And here, yeah. uh, Hey, it's good reconnecting with you. I'm glad we got to have this conversation today. I'm certain it was helpful to our listeners. Although it always uh, helps to hear it. So listeners, any feedback you can provide, we're grateful for. You can reach us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you haven't yet rated us where you get your podcasts, mm-hmm. it, it would help us and it would help future listeners who are out there uh, adrift uh, and needing some direction. Uh, one active service you can do is to help raise this podcast in the listings by giving us a rating where you found us. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I look forward to next week. Until then, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 